Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Fast talk. Street talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid talk. Hot talk. The independent republic of Mike Graham. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We have got some show for you this morning. Kicking off Monday morning, uh, it is going to be a belter of a week. There's an awful lot going on. Of course, uh, we're going to keep you abreast of all of the breaking news that we do as ever uh, with this morning's terrible, terrible trial uh, coming to an end. The sentencing of Lucy Letby, uh, the woman who is being called the biggest child serial killer uh, in the history of this country. Worse than Beverly Allett. Yes, indeed. Even in the NHS, in a way, worse than Harold Shipman, the doctor uh, who used to put so many older people to sleep without their permission. He killed many people. Uh, Lucy Letby, we believe, may have attacked more than the people that she's actually been charged with killing uh, and attempting to kill. She may have been trying to kill as many as 30 more. Uh, Equally, the NHS will be bearing the brunt of the responsibility for a lot of this because they should have seen it, they should have stopped it, and they should have fired Lucy Letby. They were warned plenty of times by plenty of doctors, by plenty of nurses. But guess what? The mechanisms within the NHS are not fit for purpose. We've been telling you this for a long time. And we're not going to sit here and say that the NHS bears the brunt of these terrible killings. But what we do say is that the NHS is certainly responsible for allowing them to continue. And it's the processes inside the NHS that must be changed. And it's the HR departments inside the NHS that must be changed. Let's face it, there were plenty of good doctors and good nurses who reported this ghastly evil woman to the authorities. They did nothing about it. This will be the first opportunity I've had to talk about this story because it broke just after my last show on Friday. Uh, We'll bring you the sentencing this morning, but we will also be asking the question, why on earth is a woman like this, an evil, twisted, ghastly serial killer, allowed to sit out the sentencing hearing and decide not to bother going to it because she doesn't feel like it. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not having that. I think I would be dragging her kicking and screaming out of that cell and making her sit in the dock and making her look into the eyes of the victim's families because that is precisely what she should be doing. Meanwhile, we've got a racist mayor in London, Mayor Sadiq Khan. That's right. Uh, He's decided to give advice through the various uh, auspices of his fine office here in London, uh, which is no longer where it used to be, which is where a specific building was put up to house the mayor and his various um, opinions and his various minions, he's decided it's a good idea to suggest that actually white people are not representative and not true Londoners. There's a document which was produced and it was found by the Mail on Sunday very, very smartly. Uh, And he's in much, much trouble this morning because Sir Keir Starmer is being urged to sack him or at the very least suspend him, right? And he's also facing calls to apologise because his website carried a photograph of a white family with the words above it, doesn't represent real Londoners. Well, yesterday, none of his tweets were about that. They were all about the lionesses. He put out a load of pictures of people celebrating the lionesses 
playing football in the World Cup final down uh, in Brisbane, Australia, uh, he didn't make any mention of how some of the people in the picture were white and therefore not representative of Londoners. Uh, he was forced to distance himself yesterday from what was branded an inappropriate comment uh, which formed part of an official guide to uh, the Greater London Authority branding mechanism, right? Um, one of the pictures depicted a young white family holding hands, walking along the banks of the Thames with the London eye in the background, features a mother and father smiling alongside their daughter and son. The caption says, doesn't represent real Londoners. Congratulations, Sadiq Khan, you've now managed to alienate all the white people in the city of London. Tremendous. 0344 499 1000. We'll be speaking to Rafe Haydel Mancou, a historian and broadcaster, about all of this. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the New Culture Forum. Peter Hitchens is also here. Peter Fortune is the deputy leader of the Tories at City Hall. We'll find out what he's got to say about it. Also, we will find out precisely what is going on inside the mind of somebody like Lucy Letby, because quite frankly, it's a chilling story. It's a chilling um, set of events that happened. And thank God that finally the police were able to stop her from her killing spree. How did the NHS get it so wrong? We'll bring that to you. We'll also bring you the world of woke, as ever, of course, 0344 499 1000. And that ridiculous, incredible video uh, of dangerous cycling going on now as a sport. They think it's funny. Somebody's going to die. This is Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the very first show of the week. It is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. It is Talk TV. Uh, we are, of course, the place to get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Let's check in now with Rafe Adel Mancou, historian and broadcaster, senior fellow at the New Culture Forum. Rafe, a very good morning to you. Um, I'd like to kick off this morning with this incredible story about Sadiq Khan uh, and the incredible racism that clearly persists inside of his inner circle, uh, inside of um, uh, the London Mayor's office. On his own website, they carry a picture of a white family and they say they're not representative of London. I mean, can you believe that? No. no. Well, unfortunately, I can believe it. That's the great shame here. And heads need to roll over this. This should be a catalyst for change at City Hall because, you know, many people do believe that Sadiq Khan is racist against white people. And it's stories like this that actually just reinforce that belief. And, you know, with quite good reason. You know, whether you want to call it racism or anti-white prejudice, there's something deeply wrong with the mayor of London's office, where diversity now is just a code word meaning non-white. I mean, you'll see photographs now where everybody is either all Asian or all black, and they celebrate that for being diversity. That's not diversity at all. It's just replacing white people with another ethnicity. And just imagine if Khan's office had actually said this about black people, if they had labelled a photograph of a black family as being unrepresentative of real Londoners in favour of one of, say, white people. There'd be an uproar over mm. that. There'd be an inquiry. Keir Starmer wouldn't have waited more than five minutes yeah. before, before suspending uh, Sadiq Khan from that. This is grossly offensive, not only to living white people, but also to the generations of white people uh, who made London the greatest city in the world. Let's make no mistake about it. London has been overwhelmingly white for over 2,000 years. As late as 1961, it was 98% white. 2001, it was about 60% white still. Now, today, white British are only about 37% of the population of London, but they are still the single largest ethnic group. And if we take all white people, whether they're British or not, London is still majority white. 53% mm. of Londoners are white, uh, compared to, I forget what it is now, but it's for 13% who are black. So yeah. four times more people uh, are white than are black. So the white family people, not Yeah, presumably the white people above the 38% figure are from other countries. You know, because London has always been a magnet for immigration, like most cities, and like most cities in the country, it tends to have a more ethnic makeup than the rest of the country. Because if you travel yourself uh, like 30 miles away from London, uh, into darkest Kent, uh, into, you know, the wilds of Sussex, into in Dorset, Cornwall, you know, it's a very white place. Mostly Britain is a white country, uh, something like 80 odd percent white. So for Sadiq Khan uh, to use this narrative and to encourage this narrative would suggest that not only is he wrong about London, he's wrong about Britain and he's wrong uh, to even highlight different people's race. 
He also, on his Twitter account over the weekend, was busy celebrating Black Pride um, and also celebrating another festival that he wants to hold in the middle of Trafalgar Square, uh, which is sort of Black Culture Week or something, you know. But even if you and I were to say, can we have a White Culture Week, you'd be designed, you'd be, you'd be decried as some kind of white supremacist. Yeah, well, it reminds me of when Ken Livingston was mayor and he gave funds for a St. Patrick's Day parade but refused to have one for St. George's Day parade because it was racist. Yeah. It's in London, the capital of England, you right. know. But this whole episode, you're quite right, it just this and the black on the square, everything just reveals how utterly rotten and divisive, you know, uh, the mayor, Khan's mayoralty is yeah. right now. Right. It's absolutely steeped in all of this. It's bias, it's prejudice, and it's these, you know, it's pursuing divisive agendas like this. And the thing that gets me is that Khan is always accusing people on the right of stoking the culture yes. war. When actually he's the grand poobah of, poli- of the <laughs> politics of hatred and division. Yes. Instead, it was just last week, if you remember, he sent out an equally outrageous tweet directly blaming right-wing culture wars on that horrendous homophobic stabbing yes. in, in Clapham. And I pointed out at the time that the right London isn't because of the culture wars, it's because of mass immigration from Africa, Asia and the Middle East, mm. where they're rapidly homophobic cultures in, in many of the in many of those regions and as soon as the image of the black suspect of the Clapham stabbing was released suddenly Sadiq Khan and all the do-gooders went absolutely silent yes it's funny we though, haven't heard it? a peep from them since then but if you know you know if it was a white person yeah it would be a furore and a yeah. frenzy of posts well this is the great irony isn't it of, of Sadiq Khan championing the cause of, of migration but many of those people coming here come from, as you say, countries where not only is homosexuality outlawed, uh, but they get killed for it uh, in some cases or certainly imprisoned. Um, you've also got, you know, incredible misogyny coming in. Uh, we're importing from various countries where women are not equal to men, uh, which is one of the reasons presumably why we see so many men coming over on the small boats because they don't bring the women with them. We're told because they're more likely to face persecution, so they leave the women behind. I mean... It's an incredible kind of ridiculous and, and nonsensical position for Sadiq Khan to hold. And he's now revealed himself to be no better than your average racist, hasn't he? Oh, absolutely. And it's probably quite fitting in a way because London has become now the most intolerant region of the country. Mm. You know, London used to be the most tolerant place. You know, young gay men would come to London for that security and to be themselves where they couldn't be in, in their little hometowns and yeah. so forth. But as you say, homophobia, and misogyny, anti-Semitism, the strongest concentration of all that, all the recent polls have shown, is actually in London. Yeah. Uh, well, who you know, can we... forget those guys waving the ISIS flags driving down Finchley Road, you know, uh, in, uh, living, uh, driving by Jewish areas, threatening to rape Jewish women, you know, on a loud hailer. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, this, what's, what's happening now? You remember recently when, when Sadiq Khan said that London was built by migrants. Yeah. It was utter rubbish. St Paul's Cathedral, the Houses of Parliament, Buckingham were not built by migrants. No. That's an insult to the generations who built this great city. But what he's trying to do with all of this is he's trying to create a new foundation myth, you know? Mm. All cultures, all civilizations have these foundation myths people used to get inspired by. London was supposed to have been founded by Brutus of Troy after defeating Gog and Magog. But now there's this new, equally ludicrous myth that Sadiq Khan is creating for London that has always been a multicultural city. It's always been, it's thanks to immigrants that everything that London has was created and founded. It's all stuff and nonsense. Yeah. And it's dangerous stuff because it's, the, it's stoking the politics of division and it's alienating and aggravating and irritating uh, decent white people, and yeah. that's how you get. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because if, if if you followed the logic of his argument, he would then suggest, presumably, that the industrial revolution was invented by immigrants. And you go, in that case, why didn't they stay in their own countries and do it there? Oh no, it started in Britain. There we are. Yeah, because Britain happened to be at that particular moment in time, industrially the most advanced nation on the planet. You know, there's nothing to be ashamed of, uh, but they would like, on the one hand, to say that they started everything that was good in Britain um, and then ended everything that was bad because Britain actually exported bad things and imported good things. The whole thing is a nonsense. Uh, Rafe, stay with us, if you would, for a moment. We've got more to talk about, plenty more to say um, about Sadiq Khan. We will, of course, issue the normal uh, quality um, offering to Mr Khan. Come on the show, answer for yourself. Tell us why you think it's a good idea uh, to say that white families are not representative of London. We've given you many opportunities to speak on this show. You've never taken them up. I don't know why that is. Your people always say no. Here's your chance to prove you're not a racist 
Call the number 0344 499 1000. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Rafe Hadel Mancou from the New Culture Forum. Rafe, we've got to talk about the Lucy Letby case and the NHS's role uh, in what happened. She's going to be sentenced today for murdering seven babies. Uh, the belief is that she attempted to murder seven more. She may have even wanted to murder as many as 30 more children. Um, but the NHS's performance in this whole debacle is shameful, isn't it? The fact that they didn't want to listen to doctors and nurses who said that she was a danger to children, the fact that they made doctors and nurses apologise to her in order to make her feel better, they didn't see that she was an obsessed and dangerous serial killer, in fact so much so that they wanted to put her into Alder Hay Hospital, a hospital for children, where she, God knows what she could have done. I mean, words fail me when I try to say, you know, I don't think scandal is as big, big enough no. term to describe what's going on here. You know, it's, it's, it's further evidence, if I can just say, of the detrimental effect that HR departments are having, not just in the NHS, but throughout our, our bureaucracy, taking away common sense. Because you've got to remember here, you know, doctors first raised concerns about this in 2015. Yeah. No action was taken at that time. And she went on to attack at least five babies killing two, perhaps more, if this if this new stuff goes further in finding more things here. But the hospital also, remember, they delayed calling the police after months of warnings about, about all of this, and they scolded and silenced the doctors. And you have to think, what does a bureaucrat think they know more than a doctor about any of this sort of thing? Right. It absolutely stinks. Now, the government is going to have an inquiry into this, but it's not a statutory inquiry. And I don't know why that is, because a statutory inquiry can compel witnesses to attend and give evidence. And they don't have that yeah. ability right now under its terms. So I'm calling on the government to actually see sense and change this yes. and do proper justice and have, and have an inquiry. But also, more importantly, also, as you said in your opening monologue, there needs to be a change in the law to compel people who are convicted to actually attend yes. their sentencing, to give those families who've been destroyed some small type of closure by being able to give deliver their victor, victim impact statement and you know the closest they'll ever get to a face-to-face -face yeah. meeting with the convict so they can say that the hurt the harm and the devastation that they've experienced but also for the judge to be able to deliver those sentencing remarks directly to the convict because the judge is essentially speaking on behalf of the british nation when he will today deliver his damning verdict mm. on, uh, on, on Letby and tell her how awful and despicable and horrific her actions were. And for someone to be able to get away from all of that, I think is disgraceful. This yeah. is the ultimate, or the last act of cowardice of a cowardly woman. Exactly right. And we're told this morning that she has indeed refused to sit in the dock uh, the sentencing gets underway uh, almost as we speak right now, so we'll bring you that uh, as and when we can. But absolutely outrageous. And from what I can gather, it's a relatively recent thing here uh, whereby uh, people have refused to go and sit in the dock. Uh, we saw it um, uh, with the killers of, uh, of that young woman, in uh, young child actually, in Liverpool, didn't we? Uh, the Corbell uh, case where the, the, the killer there didn't want to go and sit in front of the, the victim's family. Uh, we also had it, I think, in that police case as well, did we not, with Wayne Cousins, who also didn't go. And apparently, from what I can gather at least, legally, it comes down to the prison service themselves, because they are the people who have to transport the so-called um, uh, the convicted felon from jail to the courtroom. And they, of course, no doubt, have been imbued with health and safety and wokery. So they're worried about being sued. They're worried about causing too much alarm and, and uh, problem for the person involved. They're worried about, um, you know, harming them as they move them from point A to point B. So there's a whole host of reasons where you can once again blame the wokists for this and say, just take whoever it is, grab them by the hair, pull them out of the cell, put them in a black Mariah, drive them to the old Bailey, wherever it is, and put them in the dock. That point ends. Look, I mean, look, there's one occasion when we perhaps can take a leaf out of the Americans on this, on this, when you've seen them come with their orange jumpsuits and they've got their handcuffs linked to cuffs around their ankles as well. Yeah. And they waddle on in so they can't be a threat to anybody or to themselves when they're right. trussed up like that. And uh, absolutely, I think we need to have something like that. But, you know, there is, of course, always the risk that the convict will try to disrupt proceedings in the sentencing yeah. as well. So there may even be an opportunity to actually just have 
a video link. You know, they can give evidence via video link yes. from their cells. Why can't they be forced to actually watch the sentencing from their cells? Mm. There's absolutely no defense in any way from not actually being present, either on either virtually or in real life, to hear your sentencing. Absolutely right. Uh, final one for you, uh, Rafe. The ministers who are now saying, rip up these soft home office rules. This is a story that broke over the weekend as well. Richard Tice got um, a whistleblower inside the home office to supply him with... Um, questions and and sort of indications of which questions can be asked by home office um, um sort of in, inquisitors to migrants who are coming into the country uh, they basically say you can't be too hard on them um if they've been found to be lying uh, that does not necessarily disqualify them from staying uh if they um don't want to answer any questions because they're too upsetting uh, then they shouldn't have to i mean absolutely ludicrous so effectively Basically, being asked a question by anyone from the Home Office uh, is a complete and utter waste of time. Because one, you don't have to answer them. Two, uh, nothing stops you coming in, no matter what you say. Yeah, if you if you are a legitimate asylum seeker and you've you've come here because you've escaped untold suffering in you know in your homeland, being asked a few questions over a cup of tea in a nice you know warm in a warm location by an officer isn't going to be a distressing experience. You know, we're not talking about a good cop bad cop scenario yeah. here you're being interrogated or we're making a laughing stock of ourselves we need to create a genuinely hostile environment if we're going to have any hope at all of, of reducing the tidal flow of immigrants in this country Theresa may's hostile environment was was, was completely weak uh, had no 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 muscle behind it we need to have a proactive policy to make britain seem so unappealing that they will stay in france they will stay in germany and they will do anything other than come here Exactly right. And of course, you use the phrase hostile environment as a good thing, which is entirely correct. Unlike the lefties who use it as a bad thing. You know, oh, it's a hostile environment. It's a dangerous place for people to come. Well, then maybe they shouldn't come. But they are coming in their droves by the hundreds and hundreds of thousands. To make matters worse, the Foreign Office is now jumping in on the bandwagon. Uh, they've told government officials not to use the term hostile state in case it upsets China. Yeah, I... I mean, this is absolutely hilarious. I mean, you know, there we are worrying about um, worrying about what words we're going to be using, whilst China has never compromised once. And this is all this is all being done, I should say, so as to placate China and not to unfairly malign China as being a hostile state. Yeah. Meanwhile, it's engaged in industrial espionage. It's got spies in our universities stealing intellectual property. It's spying on us via TikTok. It's engaged in industrial-scale human rights abuses. And it's got a long-term plan to turn Western allies around the world into Chinese Communist Party yeah. allies. But, oh, no, we can't call that a hostile state. No. We can't call Russia a hostile, inherently hostile, even though it's been hostile to Poland and its neighbours for centuries. It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, you know, yeah. those keep your eye on uh, keep your eye on those Chinese electric cars and the traffic jams as well. They could be spying on you. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, you'd be amazed that now we've got these uh, you know, internet in your fridges and everywhere else. Yeah. There's nothing that's going to be happening that we're not being monitored by by, by somebody or other. Yes. And uh, you know, we we have to start to realise the long game that's being played by countries like China, North Korea. Iran and Russia, and to pretend that these aren't hostile to the West and to Western values is a, is a fool's game. These are authoritarian nations that are modern-day imperialists, and we need to step up to the plate because only strength can defeat strength, and they only respect strength, and the West is anything but strong at the yeah, moment. Absolutely right. Ray, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Ray Hadel, Menku, historian, broadcaster, and senior fellow uh, at the New Culture Forum, uh, with plenty to say about many great things there. Um, how about this from uh, Dennis? He says, great show, Mike. Totally agree with you on the women's football. Uh, just to add, the Lib Dems in Newbury are looking at emptying the bins every three or four weeks. Brilliant. Uh, well, we bring you all of the news that is fit to print, of course. We understand that Lucy Letby's sentencing is underway. Uh, coming up, we're going to speak to Peter Fortune, uh, who is, of course, the deputy leader of the Conservatives uh, in the London Assembly. We'll find out from him why Sadiq Khan thinks it's OK to publish racist statements like white people are not representative of London. If that's not a racist statement, I don't know what is. This is Talk TV. <laughs> Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graves. It's Monday morning. The skies are clearing a little bit. It was a bit murky this morning, a little bit on the chilly side uh, for a summer's day, considering that it is, of course, actually uh, quite 
close to the end of August, almost the final week of August. So we're almost getting into autumn. But let me face it, uh, it isn't bad. It's not raining. Uh, it's not windy. It's not terribly cold. We'll bring you uh, all of the news, of course, around the world about the weather. Uh, because I think I was thinking over the weekend we might end up doing a kind of a forest fire of the week because it seems as though this week's forest fire, to look out in the news, uh, is in Canada, uh, which is a very long way away from here. But there was all sorts of people on the news over the weekend telling us how dreadful it all was and how many people were being evacuated and how dangerous it all was. Of course, we've had the floods in California. Uh, we've got people quoted saying that, you know, they're very worried people are going to die. You know, what is it all about? Could it be that they want us to think the climate change is becoming more and more dangerous? Could it be that? It might be. Sadiq Khan, of course, thinks he wants to save the planet, uh, but he thinks he wants to save it only for people who are not white, uh, because people who are white, he says, are not representative uh, of those people in London who actually live in London. He's wrong about that, of course, as he's wrong about so many things. Uh, he's also in the papers this morning uh, for trying to silence the scientists who doubted the efficacy or the usefulness if you like, of ULEZ and its expansion, which is coming uh, in just over a week's time. Let's talk to Peter Fortune, Deputy Leader uh, of the Conservatives and London Assembly Member for Bexley and Bromley. Peter, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Mike. I mean, uh, I, I, I scarcely know where to begin this morning with Sadiq Khan. I mean, this um, website and this guideline that he's got for the marketing and the branding of, of London to suggest that white people are not representative of London is quite shocking. He hasn't, to my knowledge, made any kind of statement about it. We've asked him to come on the show here. Uh, of course, we haven't heard back. What, what do you make of it? And, and, and to your knowledge, has he said anything about it? Uh, to my knowledge, no. Um, this, is, this is not a, a subject I know a lot about. I read some of the reports in the newspaper yesterday. I, I think that the mayor's office put out a response saying that it was uh, written by a junior member of staff. I mean, I I don't think that that's uh, that's credible. I think that if you're at the top of an organisation, you should take responsibility mm. for it. But look, you know, any kind of politics that seeks to drive people apart, that seeks to to, to, to to divide us, to make us feel like we're different is wrong. That's not the way that you grow consensus. That's not the way that you govern. And even if somebody in the mayor's office says that they didn't mean to write it, I do worry that they might just maybe intrinsically think it. Yes. So, I would advise the, the mayor to go away and have a, a conversation without coffee with some of his members of staff. Well, I think perhaps what he might want to do as well is to address the people in London um, who happen to not be from an ethnic minority because they might not all necessarily be from Britain originally. There might be a lot of white people here from other European countries, for example, which as far as I know, there are. Um, but he's having, you know, he's out there celebrating Black Pride Month. He's having a black festival in Trafalgar Square. He never has any white festivals. I mean, you know, I'm not suggesting he can't have both. But why does he only have festivals that celebrate ethnic minorities? And one of the interesting things, um, I, I mean, you know that I, I come on this morning to talk about ULES and the reports uh, from uh, Imperial that were yeah. covered up by the mayor's office. One of the interesting things that come out from the report about ULES, the Jacobs report, talked about how it would impact um, people of colour. Actually, the, the implementation of ULES to the whole of outer London from the Jacobs report, from the independent report that was that was done by the mayor's office and TfL, says that it will have a a, a really bad impact on uh, BAME uh, residents. It will really hit people who are driving private hire vehicles. A lot of that will be from ethnic minorities. So it's interesting. What you're saying is there are these big kind of media displays of 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 diversity, and yet actually, when you get down into the weeds of it, when you look at the bones of something, this policy around the ULES expansion that he's driving through is going to hit those people that he says he cares about the most. Yeah, well, I mean, it says that. I'm not even sure if that's particularly true. More interestingly, he's also accused this morning of trying to silence um, yeah. various scientists, as you say, who questioned the claims because there are so many holes in his ULES policy um, that if it was supposedly a mask uh, to stop you from getting COVID, um, it wouldn't stop anything, would it? Well, and, and, and that's uh, the reason I was asked to come on to talk this morning. Um, this goes down to a report from uh, Imperial College, another part of Imperial College, uh, that's in their research, it suggested that the impact of ULES would be would be negligible. It would have uh, less than a 3% impact on, on air quality. In fact, uh, Dr. Mark Stettler, if I've got that surname right, said in that report that you shouldn't expect the ULES expansion to, to make or to fix a problem of air quality in outer London. And the quality of air in outer London is a debatable subject anyway. But the point is, the crux of this is that the mayor's office got hold of this report and they wrote to uh, another uh, professor over at Imperial, Professor Frank Kelly, and essentially asking him to, to squash it, to get rid of it. Mm. 
And there's emails that we found, and this has been reported in the Telegraph and the Man and other publications today as well, where we found via Freedom of Information email exchanges where the mayor's office is writing press releases for um, this Department of Imperial College. And, and we don't think that's right. One of the core principles of, of science is that you have open and transparent debate. The mayor of London often tries to describe himself as the most transparent mayor ever. There are questions... Well, he's, he's transparently a fraud. There are questions as to why is he trying to cover this up, right? Now, through this whole... ULES saga and you know I've, I've been quite heavily involved with this over the last couple of years and I mean there is I mean you could write a book about this process um, and hopefully throw it at him afterwards but if you, if you look at one of the reasons that the expansion of ULES to outer London um, has been qualified it's, be it's because it's purported to um, improve air quality right and this report the import from Imperial that was paid for by the mayor's office um, it was funded over um, I think it was over 800 well let's let's get it right paid for by the taxpayer shall we say paid, paid for by the tax office that's absolutely right yes it's public money which again highlights the fact that that we should have open and transparent mm. debate about the, the science um, the fact that that uh, report is the one that's being used to drive through this this concept of uh, the expanded ULES improving air quality makes it even more concerning that reports that opposed it from equally credible sources, in fact, from the same institution, were, were squashed by the mayor's office. Right. Let's let's get back to the point, right? The point is that there was an independent report from Jacobs, and this was released years ago. I think I've come on this program to talk to Kevin about it previously which showed that there's negligible impact um, through expanded ULES. There is negligible positive impact through expanded ULES. In fact, as I talked about earlier, there's a, there's a real impact on people's well-being, on charities, on small businesses. What we've found now is there's another piece of research that says if you expand this ULES zone, it doesn't make that much of a difference when you, when you look at it compared to the, the impact it's going to have on people's lives and well-being. So why has the mayor's office tried to squash these reports? Why has it aggressively pushed through a report that was paid for by public funds? And and, and to a large to... extent, by the way, almost a million pounds has been handed to this guy, uh, Frank right, Kelly, yeah. from uh, from yeah. Imperial. Uh, nearly a, a million pounds. It's an awful lot of money. It is an awful lot of money, yeah. Um, and that's because the expansion of the ULS zone, in my and others' view, is that it is purely a tax break. TFL's finances are yeah. in a terrible state, and that's because of the mismanagement of the mayor. We know what happened with COVID. Government stepped in to provide £6 billion to cover that the money was lost through the, um, the, the dropping off of ticket sales during COVID. Other parts of TFL needs to be looked at again. We need to look at the fact that there are people travelling for free because they live with or related to somebody that are yeah, working for... That's for ridiculous. Totally we need to look ridiculous. at the £100 million that can be saved from the final salary pension. We need to look at the exorbitant salaries of... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A huge number of top executives over six figures, uh, you know, too many of them. There are real savings to be made there, but the mayor won't do that because that's too difficult. What's easier to do is to expand the Euro zone, take finance, take revenue for two years from the poorest in London, from small businesses, from charities, and then you use that as a bridgehead to move to a, a per mile user charging model, which you'll be able to do because he's got the cameras yeah. in place. I mean, the point is this. Um, Sadiq Khan is now operating as if London is his own private fiefdom. And he doesn't seem to listen to the people. Uh, he does a consultation, uh, which proves that not uh, not a significant amount of people actually want uh, nothing done yeah. about it. They don't want it expanded. 80% or more of people living in London do not want to see it happening. He's doing it anyway. He claims he's listening to London. He's not. He's giving taxpayers money away uh, to uh, a professor at Imperial and do, who's doing environmental research that he wants him to do and wants, and then wants the, the, the end result to agree with him. You know, it's an absolute scandal. And some politicians have already asked Keir Starmer to suspend him from the Labour Party. Um, others have said that Keir Starmer should resign. Sorry, not Keir Starmer, that Sadiq Khan should resign, not because of ULES, but because of this racial uh, business that happened over the weekend as well. I mean, would you be calling for him to at least consider his position or calling for Keir Starmer to suspend him at this point? We could do something even better than that. There's an opportunity to get rid of him next May. So we've got a great candidate in Susan Hall, who I've worked with over the last couple of years. She's promised that she'll get rid of ULES on day one. She's uh, making some really uh, common sense uh, policies. She's, a, she's a, uh, addressing Sadiq's failures, his many failures, by the way, right? Um, if you're looking at a police service that's in special measures, you're looking at a fire brigade that's in special measures. Despite some of the uh, rhetoric that you saw displayed in the media over the last couple of weeks, he's had an awful record in terms of building family homes, right? He always talks about starts. You can't live in a start, mm. right? I mean, I joined a gym. It's made no difference. You've got to do the actual work, right, to, 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 get, the, to get the positive outcome. Um, so in, in May, in a few short months' time, we've got a real opportunity to get rid of Khan and put Susan Hall in as the mayor, and she can start to, yeah. to clean up some what, of the mess what these days. Like what difference will it make, do you think, to the outcome of the election that it is now going to be first past the post? Is there any um, statistical knowledge on that? I think I think you know th those of us that work in the in the political bubble, Mike, we like to debate and, and you know kick these things around. I think. Uh, most people will on the day they'll go and vote for who they think will make the biggest difference to their lives and that's why we need to talk about Sadiq Khan's record I'm very I'm sometimes I'm reluctant to go after people personally I don't like personal politics it goes back to what you were saying uh, right at the very beginning of this interview where we were talking about uh, divisive uh, techniques or divisive advertising I don't like to do that especially when you've got a mayor whose record is this poor a mayor who's put up council tax by 57 percent over his tenure a mayor who's failed to fix uh, TFL, you know, the, the, the real infrastructure changes that it needs. It's a man who's seen uh, crime increase under his watch. I mean, he, he's, got a, he's got a record of very, very poor delivery, if not the poorest delivery. But he has. What difference will it make if, if people vote? Because people always say to me, well, if everybody hates Sadiq Khan so much, how come he keeps getting re-elected? And one of the reasons, perhaps, is that the way the voting system works helps him. So it, will that be different if it's first past the post? So I, th I think it will make a difference. I think it will make a difference. But the, the thing for us to do as the Conservative Party in London is to show and prove that we, we care about London, that um, we've got ideas and policies that are going to help improve it. And Susan's, Susan's doing that already. She's yeah, already but you also to need to get the vote out. So with respect, respect, I would suggest that you start telling people that if their vote counts more now, it counts more than ever, and they should go out and do it. That's it absolutely does, yeah. The vote counts more than ever now because we really need to get rid of uh, Sadiq Khan and we really need to get a new mayor. And Susan Hall is the person to clean up. There you up. go. That'll be 500 quid. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Good to see you. Uh, Peter Fortune, Assembly Member and Deputy Leader uh, of the Conservatives in London, also a member for Bexley and Bromley. Um, quite frankly, Sadiq Khan is a disgrace. As I said, we've often asked him to come on here and defend what he does. He never wants to. Um, the offer remains open. Uh, he can do that any time he likes. Coming up, though, uh, we'll play you that uh, incredible video uh, of some cyclists who are now rogue cyclists, in my view. Uh, they are having races through the streets of Bristol, uh, through the streets of Leeds, through the streets uh, of Manchester, through the streets of London. Uh, they think it's a great big laugh. 
what they're on is fixed uh, bikes, fixed wheel bikes, which don't stop. And they're going to kill someone soon. We've got some video which will shock you. Coming next on Talk TV. See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots more to do. We'll get some calls on board as well because we haven't done too much of that so far. But don't worry, uh, we've got plenty of time to do it in. We're here until one o'clock, of course, when Ian Collins uh, will be along. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We're still keeping an eye uh, on the Lucy Letby case. The sentencing is ongoing as we speak. Uh, obviously, it's not televised, so we'll, we'll bring you uh, news from our reporter who is inside the hearing at the moment. Lucy Letby has uh, asked not to have to appear, has opted not to appear, if you like, uh, because there seems to be a rather odd loophole which is currently being exploited by many, many serious crime uh, uh, defendants because they don't wish to have to sit in front of the families of the victims uh, in order to be um, embarrassed or in order to feel uncomfortable. Well, that shouldn't really be their choice, should it? Uh, we'll talk about that uh, with a lawyer coming up very shortly. 0344-499-1000. Bill in Cheshire says, Mike, so our king has said that the lionesses are an inspiration to future generations. They lost. So the, they are inspirational losers. We don't aspire to win then. This is what is wrong with our current generation. It's OK to lose. It's not. We need winners, achievers, leaders and real role models again. I mean, I sort of partially understand what you're saying. I don't have a problem with people saying that they're an inspiration. I don't think they should be called heroes, which is what some people would like to do. But yeah, I think they probably are an inspiration to a lot of young women who want to get into football. Um, and maybe a lot of young men who want to get into football. I don't know. Um, but I think take, saying anything more than an inspiration is probably pushing the envelope a little bit too far. But we'll come back to that. Let's talk to Dr. Mike Jones from Migration Watch. A couple of stories to get under our skin. Uh, one is that the Home Office has apparently been giving out guidelines, um, as discovered by Richard Tice from a whistleblower at the Home Office, uh, giving out instructions to their staff that if they're questioning migrants at any point, uh, they shouldn't ask them any awkward questions, effectively. And if the migrants don't wish to answer those questions because they feel uh, that they're a bit too personal, uh, or if they feel that they're a little bit insensitive, then they don't have to. Well, where does that leave the sort of the final thin blue line, if you want to call it that, for the border force and for the Home Office? It effectively means that whoever is coming into this country illegally or legally, whatever they say, is to be believed. And it's worse than that because the Home Office also say that even if they tell you lies, that should not mean their application is booted out. Seems extraordinary, doesn't it? Uh, Dr. Mike, a very good morning to you. Um, I suppose once again we expected that this would be the case, but it's always a bit worrying when you find out that it's really happening? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, there's always been a gap between what governments say in public and what they do behind closed doors. Mm. There's, there's a gap between the policies they promise and the policies they deliver. And this is a classical example of it. Politicians from both political parties have talked tough on asylum. But what we find time and time again is, is a debasement of rules and guidelines and, you know, this empowers uh, unscrupulous people such as rogue solicitors and obviously the people traffickers themselves. Uh, it, it's shocking, but not surprising. Yeah, I mean, you're right to, to, to bring the lawyers into it, because clearly, you know, there are two sort of groups of people who are going to be benefit hugely from this kind of policy. One, the, the migrants, uh, traffickers themselves, who will say to them, here's what you do. You get to England, you just get your feet on the ground. They'll take you to some, um, you know, centre where they'll ask you a few questions. Just either say this or just say nothing uh, or just tell them a load of lies and you'll be fine. Similarly, uh, these lefty lawyers, many of them we know uh, are pressuring, shall we say, migrants to come up with different narratives. And um, we've already seen law, law offices close down as a result. Um, we'll say, just tell them this and you'll be fine. I mean, it, it makes a mockery, doesn't it, of our sort of national security? It, it makes a mockery. Uh, Suella Braverman, uh, a few months back, said the system was rigged against the, the, the British people and yeah. the British and that's correct. Mm. But the Conservatives have been in power for well over a decade. And it, it begs the question, who oversaw these guidelines? Yeah. Were servants given a steer? Uh, who signed it off? Mm. Those are questions that need to be asked and we need answers. Yes. And apparently there are some ministers now who are saying the government needs to change this. They need to stop this nonsense. And, you know, um, to have a, a, a guide that says 
Don't ask people questions that they might find upsetting. And even if they lie to you, don't dismiss their application. I mean, is it any wonder um, that these application processes are taking so long? Um, although it would seem to me that if they might as well not bother asking them any questions, they might as well just process them straight away. I still, my, my, my big problem still with this processing argument is that it's all very well for people to say, well, they need to process the claims quicker. But what if they process the claims and then find that they're not eligible? We still can't send them anywhere. Yeah, in the mid noughties the rejection rates for asylum applications was close to 90%. Uh, but today, the acceptance rate is, is slightly above 70%. Yeah. Uh, so clearly, there's been a, a debasement of standards over time. And, you know, historically, immigration officers had enormous power. These were serious people. Mm. Uh, they were entrusted with interviewing these people, looking at the applications. Uh, they'd have a senior officer who would give a second pair of eyes over this. But ultimately, if, if you came into the UK with fraudulent or dodgy documents, th they would deport you. Yeah. And this would be done very quickly. Well, but quite. Well, this is my other problem with the, those who argue that the French processing system or the French processing centre is the way forward. Because again, if you process people in, in France and you find that they haven't qualified to come to Britain, then what do you think they're going to do? You think they're just going to wander off home? No, they're going to come on a bit on a dinghy. Uh, precisely. Um, when the, the the British people voted for Brexit in 2016, the government needed to think very seriously about you know new bilateral arrangements and how it would deal with the deportation process, but it didn't do so. I mean, morally, the correct thing to do is to take these people back to France, but politically, for the French, that's not going to happen because they don't want these people in their country. So uh, the government has made a rod for its own back. Uh, but again, this is just emblematic of the incompetence and short-termism of the government. Yeah. And meanwhile, you know, the, the, the boats keep coming. The Bibby Stockholm has kind of disappeared off the radar. Nobody's talking about it anymore. I assume that they've got the 50 people who were on it originally back on it again. But what about the other 450 people that are supposed to be on it? Is anything happening there as far as you know? I'm not sure. But at the end of the day, the, the Bibby Stockholm is, is a publicity stunt. Yeah. It, it's a sort of... The government is using it as a, as a visual statement that it's got control of the situation. But, you know, last month you'd need around six BB Stockholms to hold the illegal immigrants who came into this country. Yeah. And there have been delays with RAF Scampton. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it's, it's a drop in the ocean in terms of dealing with this problem. Yeah. And more hotels still being commandeered, despite Rishi Sunak's promise to no longer put many more hotels on the list. One hotel last last week that we mentioned that we brought up, Harbin House Hotel, it was another Richard Tice story, a convicted criminal um, who has been uh, committed for actually defrauding people over housing has been given funding to house migrants in this hotel, which seems to beg a belief, one, on the, great, on the basis that, you know, he's actually now having an opportunity to, to make more money from something that he's already committed crime uh, in the sector. Um, and it seems as though they're not vetting the people that are running these hotels. Yeah, I mean, it, it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And there's, <laughs> there's nothing new about rogue landlordism. I mean, in the 1950s, we had the infamous slum landlord, Peter Rackman, who owned a lot of property in Notting Hill. Yeah, He'd sub subdivide this property into, you know, mouldy shoeboxes and he'd pocket huge sums of mm. cash off the boom in Commonwealth immigration. Yes. And we're seeing exactly the same thing today. Um, uh, essentially, the, the Treasury is there to maintain law and order, mm. but they're, they're paying large sums of cash to convicted felons, to rogue landlords. And it really does stick to the craw because, you know, the, the British taxpayer has to fund this. And we're, we're going through a, a cost of living crisis. There's a crisis in the housing market and we're paying, you know, half our income to live in in, in very small properties uh, many people can't get onto the property ladder yeah. those that are on the property ladder are paying huge interest rates it's it's scandalous it really is yeah 
It really is, and they don't seem to have, as you say, any clue about how to fix it. Um, Mike Jones, thanks very much indeed. From Migration Watch, Dr Mike Jones there giving us his lowdown on what the government is not doing. Um, John in Sutton says, Mike, why has Khan not been removed as Mayor of London? We should not tolerate anti-white racism. Um, here's one from John in Wallington. Mike, an angel of death was free to roam the maternity ward and people knew it, but nothing was done. Let me is not the only one who should have been on trial. Uh, James in Nebworth says, Morning, Mike. Um, I completely agree with you about that cyclist in London, but could you please remind people that there are some, like me, who don't wear lycra and enjoy a bit of cycling and mountain biking uh, and who do make an effort not to get in people's way? James, listen, I'm not, as you know, against all cyclists. I am against extreme cyclists. I am against people who don't use bike lanes. I am against people who go through red lights. I am against people who don't stop for pedestrians. And I am against people who think that the world shines out their backside because they're wearing lycra pants and there's some kind of virtue-signalling bozo with a helmet on. Well, the helmet's on the wrong bit of you, mate. This is Talk TV. Online on DAB+, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are with you all the way through, of course, uh, for this hour until one o'clock. Ian Collins is in. Uh, he'll be taking you through the afternoon until three. Alex Phillips is back from then. Uh, and then it's Vanessa Feltz from four to seven. Jeremy Carl back, of course. Here's Morgan Uncensored, The Talk. Um, and first edition all the way through uh, until tomorrow, uh, of course, when we have another day. But the big story this hour is it's probably going to be the sentencing hearing uh, that you will hear sometime before the end of this show. Um, Lucy uh, Letby, the nurse who is accused of being the worst serial killer of children that this country has ever seen. Uh, many questions to be asked about what happened, why she was not stopped, why she was not spotted earlier, why the NHS appeared to get it so wrong, uh, why, despite the fact that many, many doctors and nurses actually complained about Lucy Letby and her strange behaviour and the fact that uh, so many children were not making it through uh, the process of birth um, and then incubation uh, inside the, um, the, the baby unit, the maternity unit, followed by the baby unit, uh, why so much bad was happening and it seemed to be always when Lucy Letby was in uh, attendance and yet the HR department of the NHS and yet uh, the management of the NHS uh, in the Cheshire Hospital where she was refused point blank to do anything about it not only that but ended up actually having doctors apologise to her uh, ended up possibly offering her to go uh, to a new station at Alder Hay Hospital a children's hospital where she would have had even more opportunity uh, to do worse things to more children. Certainly the Times this morning has got a story suggesting she may even uh, have been responsible uh, for the attacks on more than 30 other babies. She's obviously been found guilty of the murder of seven, uh, the attempted murder of a further seven. The families of those children um, will never be the same again. They're sitting currently uh, in a Crown Court in Manchester waiting to hear what the sentence is going to be, hoping that they would have seen Lucy Letby there, but she's obviously opted not to turn up for her own sentencing, which apparently is entirely within the law. Um, it is an extraordinary case, an extraordinary state of affairs. Uh, that we're going to go to Victoria Innes, Talk TV's reporter, outside the court very shortly. But first, let's say good afternoon to Dr Soam Das, a consultant forensic psychiatrist. Uh, Dr Soam, a very good afternoon to you. Hi there, Mike. Thank you for having me on. Not at all. Um, the thing about, I guess, serial killers is that people find themselves strangely fascinated by the, um, the motivation, um, by some of the kind of things that they do to appear to be normal, some of the things that drive them. I mean, what have you seen from this case so far that, that would give any indication or any, any kind of shine any kind of light on, on the character of, of Lucy Letby and how she could have become this monster that she's accused of being? Well, that's the ultimate question, isn't it? What were her motivations? I suppose as a psychiatrist, the first thing you look at is, was there mental illness? Mm. You know, so a lot of the women that I assess uh, have psychosis, so they have these delusional beliefs about children, sometimes their own babies, and that's why they do what they do. Lucy Letby clearly doesn't fit into that camp. We know that she had an element of anxiety and depression in the background. Personally, I think that's a bit of a red herring. I don't think that explains any of her actions. So if you take mental illness out of the equation, then when you, what you're left behind with as potential motivations are you know, power and control. Yeah. 
um, some sort of jealousy or hatred towards the family unit that, that she wants to destroy, or some sort of thrill, some sort of pleasure of being around the grieving process. And even when I say these things out loud, I, I appreciate that even though some of the uh, the concepts might make sense to us, I don't think anybody can really understand why she would take the step from having those thoughts and feelings to actually killing babies. Hmm. I mean, some people have said to me, look, um, some of the evidence involved in this case is very circumstantial. Some of it is, um, in fact, hearsay or opinion from various experts, people who have seen things. Some of the methods used were, were not necessarily easy to track. It's not as though she poisoned people. You know, she was using particularly, you know, stealthy methods, I suppose, of sometimes using air as a, as a device to, to, to kill. Um, I, I, lots of people have said there'll be an appeal. I mean, is it possible... Um, that she isn't, in fact, a serial killer? Is it possible that, even though she's been found guilty, that, that she might have caused the deaths of people, but she doesn't have that kind of, I don't know, uh, Rose West, you know, kind of Beverly Allett personality, if you like? Yeah, I think it's, I think she doesn't have elements of her background that are red flags. She doesn't telegraph her actions. Mm. She's not antisocial. She's not somebody with a criminal record. She wasn't a difficult colleague. Um, you know, she was actually seen as quite a competent and hardworking nurse before these allegations surfaced. So she, she doesn't, I don't think she fits into a typical category of a serial killer. As to whether or not there's a possibility that she's innocent, I mean, you're right, it, it was circumstantial evidence, but it's very, very strong evidence. And I think we have to trust in the system that if a jury of peers found her guilty beyond reasonable doubt, then you know there are miscarriages of justice. But I, I do believe that we have to believe that the system works. And of course, if she is not uh, guilty, if she's in fact innocent, then there's two other possibilities. Either it was a com incredibly bad luck in that unit, and I think that's statistically impossible, mm. or somebody else did it. And that would beg the question, who else did it? And right. there doesn't seem to be any other likely perpetrators. Right. And one of the things that I think is interesting, and, and I'm sure you'd find this fascinating as well, is that those who say to me, we're not sure about this, or you know, how could it be that the NHS didn't really see what was going on? Partly is a belief, I think, from some people's perspective that who would want to kill babies? You know, you couldn't possibly imagine that there would be somebody there who would be deliberately snuffing out the young lives of, of, of children who'd literally only just been born. Yeah, absolutely. I think people have an assumption that most people, healthcare professionals, are empathetic and, you know, professional and they right. do their jobs properly. So to even accuse a nurse in the first place uh, is is quite a step to take, you yeah. know, and I think the doctors were courageous in actually doing that, which makes it all the more tragic that their concerns were just pushed away by the managers. Right. Because, again, it's it's too terrifying, isn't it? I mean, when you think, I mean, I covered the Jeffrey Dahmer trial in America. And he was, you know, one of the few cannibals who, who was uh, ever seen uh, or heard of again. Um, and he had a kind of a, a, a drive that was about wanting to have sex with people who were kind of inanimate. He didn't want them to be dead, but he wanted them to be his and that he was able to do anything with them. And people thought to themselves, well, that's Jeffrey Dahmer. He was kind of praying and picking on people that nobody really knew. He was picking up young men. Uh, he was finding young guys on the street. You know, I'm not in danger from that. But if it's somebody working in the NHS, you're suddenly going, hang on a minute, that's a bit different. I could be the victim of that. Yeah, absolutely. It is really terrifying. And especially, as we were saying uh, earlier, because she didn't tele telegraph her actions, because she didn't have any red flags behaviour, yeah. which is why, in my view, and I think probably in most people's view, it's so important to have a fair system of whistleblowing where uh, complaints are taken seriously, because yeah. it's such a huge step to make these accusations. If they are brushed under the carpet, then what's the point of having you know, a safeguarding system? Yeah, absolutely right. If you could stay with us, Dr. Sam, I'm just going to go live to the Crown Court, Manchester Crown Court, to be precise. Victoria Innes is Talk TV's reporter awaiting the uh, announcement from the court uh, about the sentencing. Um, Victoria, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon. So it's been a pretty busy morning, I guess, for you all there. Um, we're told that the sentencing proper will get underway around about 12.30. Um, what have you been seeing and hearing so far up there? Yes, correct. We expect Lucy Letby to be sentenced in around about 15 minutes' time. Now, of course, we know uh, as of last week that Lucy Letby is not present in court. She is in the building. She is in a holding cell below, but she has refused uh, to attend in person, much to the anger, as you can imagine, of a lot of those families who have been sitting in that courtroom day in, day out. One of them referenced, uh, you know, this morning we have been listening to the personal victim impact statements from those families about how Lucy Letby's crimes uh, have 
how you know the horrific murder of many of their babies has affected them and you know they spoke about the moment that Lucy decided not to come to court and they said they have been there day in day out and she simply decided that she had had enough and they sort of indicated that that was a final insult to them after everything they've been through now look these are some of the sickest babies they were vulnerable babies at the Countess of Chester Hospital and these victim statements really you know started off many of them by reflecting at the joy that these families felt when they finally became pregnant through you know IVF many of them had traumatic pregnancies many of them had had miscarriages and they talked about you know that joy quickly turning uh, to, to utter despair um, when they found out what was happening that they were losing their children now one mother of twins one of which Lucy let be murdered the other she attempted to murder uh, said in court what should have been the happiest time of our lives has become our worst nightmare now many of them talk about struggling to come to terms with the fact that this was the one person in the whole world at that time who was supposed to be protecting their babies who they were supposed to be listening to and following the advice of who then turned around and could inflict so much pain one of them said he was taken away in the place where he should have been the most safest now many of the families talked about the trauma they have experienced uh, over the last seven to eight years of course that this has been going on many of them say they have had nightmares they have contemplated suicide they have had to have therapy and counseling one said I kept wishing it had happened to me and at that time would have gladly taken his place now you know these are immense of, as well feelings of guilt amongst these families many of them questioning in those statements whether they could have done more whether they should have stayed at their children's bedsides whether they should have asked more questions of the hospital at the time one of them said I blame myself entirely for his death I couldn't protect him in pregnancy or in his short life now some of them spoke about raising concerns at the time one parent stood up in court and said she had asked uh, the Countess of Chester why uh, this had happened because there was uh, something unusual they felt they said they knocked on the door several times they said they wanted to involve the police and the hospital said this is not a criminal matter which further emphasizes that anger that we have had that people you know at the hospital there need to be held to account as to why it took so long for Lucy Letby uh, to be uh, held accountable for her actions now some of the children obviously have been left with severe uh, learning difficulties disabilities as a result of this and many of the parents detailed that in court today that you know these feelings uh, of of, of, uh, of trauma have continued over the last seven to eight years and will continue throughout their lives now on the sentencing obviously Lucy Letby is not in court today we know that and many of the families says said look there is no sentence that will ever compare to the excruciating agony we have suffered as a consequence of your murder of our son but at least now there is no debate that in your own words you killed them on purpose you are evil you did this Thank you very much indeed. Victoria Innes, Talk TV's reporter outside Manchester Crown Court, will come back, of course, to Victoria after the sentencing hearing, which will happen around about 10 minutes from now. Let's go back to Dr. Soam Das, a consultant forensic psychiatrist. Um, Dr. Das, um, you gave us some fascinating insight into why she might have done what she did. Um, what's her thought process now, and why would she not want to be in court to hear the sentencing. Do you think she's in some kind of denial? Do you think it's been going on for, for such a long time that it's almost not real for her? So I think there's a possibility that this could be a last act of defiance, mm. that it's about power and control uh, in the only way that's really possible for her in these circumstances. But I've got to say, even though that's theoretically possible, I don't think that's the case because throughout the trial, there hasn't been this kind of pride or smugness or indifference from her. She's actually, you know, uh, protested her innocence and she's seemed quite emotionally invested. Mm. So I think her not attending is just an extension of, of her saying that she's innocent and maybe even believing to a degree she's innocent. I don't think she's uh, delusional. I think she knows that she did it, but I think she's still invested in the idea of being offended, of being accused. Yeah. And connected to that, I think that she doesn't want to add to the spectacle. This is just purely from her perspective. She knows that she's vilified. She knows that she's probably the most hated person in the UK right now. Mm. So from her perspective, why expose herself to more cameras, more pointing, more people, you know, um, insulting her? And, and some of the uh, stuff I've read over the weekends has been mention of a, of a doctor that she was supposedly infatuated with. Some seem to think she had an affair with him. Nobody's really sure, but... Could it be that this was all because of him, that she wanted his attention to such an extent that she wanted to behave in a way that he would notice her? Sure, I, I've heard and read about that theory as well, Mike. 
I personally don't buy it, and I'll, I'll explain why. Because from what I understand, they already had some kind of relationship, whatever mm. that relationship was, whether it's friendship, romantic, I think we can only speculate. They met each other outside of work on more than one occasion. So that begs the question, why would she do something so extreme just to have him present? And also, it's not he wouldn't be present in the kind of environment or scenario where they can actually spend time together or socialize, right? This is a high pressure scenario where they don't really get to interact aside from trying to save the baby's life. Yeah. So it doesn't make logical sense to me that she'd do that for that reason. Right. It's been a fascinating case. I'm sure we'll talk again, um, Dr. Das, because, of course, um, the sentencing hearing is just the beginning in a way. There might be an appeal. Um, there will be more and more uh, acres of acres of coverage of it in the press, and there will be more documentaries made. There might be films made about it. Lucy Letby uh, currently has the reputation, having been found guilty of seven murders and seven attempted murders of babies um, in a, you know, a postnatal care unit. Uh, where they were prematurely born, uh, they were in pretty bad health uh, to begin with, but she's accused of trying to kill seven of them and succeeding in killing another seven, and possibly more. She is a cold-hearted killer, says our justice system, and she will be sent to prison for a very long time. But she's not there, and she should be there to hear it and to see the victims' families shortly. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 